Hi, I'm Brian Finley, Artistic Director of the West Bend Center for Connection and Creativity Through Music. This is Music for a While, West Bend's podcast exploring the wonderful world of music, along with its creators, performers, critics, and of course, its lovers. Welcome. Today we explore the music and times of Dmitry Shostakovich, and in the expert's chair, Barb Hobart. But before Barb begins, a little bit of poetry to get you in the right mood. The boarder sits on his suitcase and pensively gazes at the floor. The chairs are the same, and the bed, and the table, the same upholstery on the sofa, the same kind of stew for dinner. But everything shines in a new light. There is a sparkle to the plump calves of the cleaning woman, Fekla, her sturdy figure leaning out of the window. Like a dissonant, mischievous chorus, the glass squeaks as it is being scrubbed, and patches of blue sky promise thousands of miracles. The boarder sits on his suitcase. The windows are clean, but still despair and silence. Fekla, Fekla, why are you so silent? At least be decisive and bright. Go grab him by the hair and set him on fire with lips of spring. The boarder and Fekla are on the sofa. Oh, what a glorious moment. You are the people and I am the intelligentsia, he tells her between kisses. And finally here, now, alone together, I, you, and you, me, we will understand each other. That's an excerpt of poetry based on Tolstoy's The Kreutzer Sonata by Sasha Chorney and said as the final song in a set of five satires, Opus 109 by Dmitry Shostakovich. We have come a long way since Joseph Haydn. Here's Barb on Shostakovich. Last week, we discussed how Haydn composed much of his work in isolation at Eisenstadt. Today, we will examine the life of Dmitry Shostakovich, who worked under even more difficult circumstances. He spanned two types of camps, traditionalism and modernism. He was also a polarizing figure in the music world, with some arguing that he is the finest composer of the 20th century and others that he's vastly overrated. But Jan Swafford, a musicologist that both Brian and I admire, wrote this. In his lifetime, he was forced to play a surreal game with mortal stakes. He survived three cataclysmic events, the Russian Revolution, World War II, and Stalin's purges. He continues, his sadly uneven output gains much of its power from our understanding of what he lived through and tried to embody in his work. And to fully understand his work, we must read between the lines and behind the notes to find the real voice. Shostakovich was born in St. Petersburg on September 25, 1906, to a fairly prosperous family. His father was a government engineer and amateur musician. His mother was a concert pianist who gave him his first piano lessons. However, his first major musical influence came from Glazunov, who was in charge of the St. Petersburg Conservatory. Shostakovich was admitted there at age 13. This was no picnic, however. The head of the school had to petition for more rations to keep his pupils from starving. At one point, each student got only two spoonfuls of sugar and half a pound of pork every two weeks. 
the conservatory was unheated, so students wore coats, hats, and heavy gloves to class, only removing the latter either to play or write exercises. There was also no public transport, so the young boy had to make his own way to the conservatory. Perhaps because of the conditions, he developed tuberculosis. Added to this, his father died, and his mother was forced to find work to support the family. Dimitri did his part by playing in cinemas for silent film, occasionally, as one musicologist has said, to the surprise, if not shock, of his listeners. Later, the composer himself would say how he had hated this and felt, quote, I was made into a musical machine, able to portray at the drop of a hat happy meetings of two loving hearts, end of quote. Something certainly at odds with life as he knew it at the time. A requirement for graduation from the academy was a piece of original music, and the 19-year-old submitted his first symphony, which was performed in both Moscow and Leningrad. Written in F minor, it had four movements, with the last two to be played without interruption. He also broke away from standard ideas in the work. He opened with a duet for trumpet and bassoon, not anything his teachers would have expected. In those early days, things were going well. He wrote film scores, two ballets, one of which I will influence or reference later, rather. His music has been used in live theatre and in films. Years ago at the St. Lawrence Theatre in Toronto, I saw a mime production of The Overcoat, the background music being that of Shostakovich. One piece was his waltz number two. This was also used in a scene from a movie adaptation of Anna Karenina, starring Sean Bean. And while the movie itself I didn't find particularly noteworthy, the ballroom scene where this waltz is featured is sumptuous and can be viewed as a clip on YouTube. based on a story by Nikolai Gogol called The Nose. It tells the story of a St. Petersburg government official whose nose leaves his face and develops a life of its own. In 1952, he married physicist Nina Varzar, with whom he had two children, Galina, his daughter, and Maxim, who became a conductor specializing in his father's works. At one point, however, before his birth, Shostakovich had an affair and divorced his wife, but remarried her on learning of the pregnancy. However, political change was on the horizon. 
pressure was put on Soviet artists to embrace, quote, social realism, end of quote. Art for art's sake was to be stamped out. Factory workers and farmers needed to understand and appreciate art, which would explore the crimes of capitalism. Sometime around 1930, the composer tried to meet those demands, but also put his own creative inclinations into a work. The result was the opera Lady Macbeth of the Mintz District. It tells the story of a 19th century merchant's wife who becomes unhinged by her repressive capitalistic life. She falls in love with one of her husband's servants and then proceeds to murder her husband and her father-in-law in order to marry her lover. However, the pair gets caught and are sent off to Siberia, where the lover himself falls in love with another convict, and so she commits suicide. Uplifting story. The opera was a huge success, playing to audiences for two years. It made it to Britain and America. The composer became a celebrity and was elected the equivalent of an MP. But then, in January 1936, disaster. Stalin attended a performance and left the theater before the final scene. Shostakovich wrote a friend, feeling sick at heart, I collected my briefcase and went to the station. When he next opened his copy of Pravda, he read of his work, muddle instead of music, words apparently written by Stalin himself. It went on to say the opera was an ugly flood of confusing sounds, a pandemonium of creaking, shrieking, and crashes. The article ended with a warning to the composer, it might end very badly. In the time of fear that was the Stalin era, the verdict was terrifying. The article had serious repercussions. The composer's union condemned it, while some so-called friends tried to ingratiate themselves with the powers that be by castigating the composer through articles and speeches. His sister and her husband were arrested around this time, and his mother-in-law sent to a labor camp. In June 1937, he was horrified by the execution of a friend whose hobby was to make violins. This friend had tried to intercede with Stalin on Shostakovich's behalf, but to no avail. The composer himself was hauled off to the sinister interior ministry and interrogated. Only a few friends stood by him. One wrote, we reacted differently and with disgust, irritation, and indignation. Dmitri himself remained silent, but he wasn't completely silent. He wrote to a friend, instead of repenting, I wrote my fourth symphony. This was a massive, dissonant work, but it was too risky to perform, so he withdrew it. It wasn't heard for 25 years. In his music, Shostakovich makes frequent use of polyphony, and I wonder, Brian, if you would please explain the concept to our listeners. Polyphony is a style of composition where individual musical voices are piled up one on top of the other. It's, uh, it's just like multiple conversations at a party. Uh, in music, as in life, of course, this can lead to a jumble of unintelligible mess. But in capable hands, this can create an amazing conversation where if you listen carefully enough, you can understand each and every voice as they all speak simultaneously. And in the best of hands, you can understand each voice and get an amazing overall understanding or harmony. 
again, like a perfect party. Let's, uh, let's have a look at, at polyphony. Let's take uh, one of the masters of polyphony, Johann Sebastian Bach. Let me introduce you to each of three characters who talk simultaneously in this three-part invention in G minor. First, the soprano. Next, the soprano and her friend, the alto. And now the final version, where the soprano and the alto continue to chat while the, the butler keeps things grounded. Now, you can contrast that to homophony, and this is where one voice is predominant and the rest is, a, is uh, accompaniment. Here is a little bit of Mozart to demonstrate that. Composer, in a stroke of what one author has called genius and the use of double entendre, crafted his fifth symphony, which he subtitled A Soviet Artist's Response to Just Criticism. The party used this symphony to show how it could make artists submit and how it alone controlled the rewards. Yet musicologists tell us that the officials missed the underlying subtext of the work. In Russia at the time, most composers' works were banned but not Beethoven's, perhaps because of his anti-aristocratic stance and his Republican sympathies. In the fifth, so the fifth was written on a model pioneered by Beethoven. Shostakovich begins it with a sonata, but then the music breaks off abruptly and drops down to a dead end in the repetition of three notes. This happens throughout. One of the themes was from a traditional folk song that everyone would recognize, but by changing one note to a minor, the meaning of the piece changes to something discordant, not unlike life at the time. Michael Tilson Thomas says he fulfills, he fulfills the official mandate of celebrating Slavic culture, but the minor shift suggests something beyond admiration. According to Tilson Thomas, the second movement is a spoof on waltzes, although Shostakovich wrote a lot of them. He draws a musical picture of a dance floor. There are peasants in their heavy boots, a man playing a squeaky clarinet, and a dance master with a violin. When Stalin was alive and purges were ongoing, authorities interpreted crying in public 
as a criticism of the regime's actions and a punishable offense. Despite that, many people openly wept at the premiere of the fifth. The piece also had reference to the liturgy of the Russian Orthodox Church, also banned at the time, and the strings were meant to give the impression of a choir. Some in the West who heard this music saw it as a capitulation, but apparently the response of the Russian people was one, as one author has put it, the assertion of will in the face of absolute terror. Luckily for Shostakovich, the forces in power missed the subtext. The composer was rehabilitated, and in 1940, after publishing one of his string quartets, Shostakovich was awarded the 100,000-ruble Stalin Prize. But then came World War II. As history will tell you, Russia suffered greatly during the war. An estimated 26 million Soviet citizens died. After the Nazis invaded in the summer of 1941, a German army surrounded the city of Leningrad in an extended siege that lasted 900 days. Shostakovich volunteered for the army, but he was so nearsighted, he was rejected. So he joined the Home Guard and dug ditches. As German troops got closer, friends urged him to leave, but he was having none of it until he was ordered to evacuate. He had begun his seventh symphony while in the city, and he continued to work on it in the remote town where he was staying. It had its premiere in that town, followed by performances all across the USSR. But Russia's allies also wanted to hear the work. The score was transferred to microfilm and made its way to New York through Tehran, Cairo, and South America. Arturo Toscanini conducted the premiere on July 19, 1942, and Time magazine ran a photo of Shostakovich on its cover. But the people in Leningrad for whom it was written also wanted to hear it. The Leningrad Radio Orchestra was called upon to perform it, but only 15 musicians showed up for the first session. A call went out to the front lines for anyone who could play an instrument. So bad were conditions at the time that three members of the orchestra died of starvation before the performance. To stop any German disturbances, a bombardment was planned for just before the concert. Loudspeakers broadcast the work into the no-man's land between enemy lines, and Shostakovich became a national hero. Did that last? Of course not. In 1948, the Leningrad party chief and favorite of Stalin made composers attend a three-day session of attacks on what he called formalism. Shostakovich, aware of his peril, publicly apologized for any composing errors, saying, when the party and all of our country condemn this direction in my creative work, I know the party is right. The Central Committee banned many of his works and fired him from his job at the conservatory. His 10-year-old son was forced to denounce his father in front of his class at school. And Shostakovich spent his nights outside his apartment so that if he were arrested, at least his family wouldn't see it. A year later, he was told he would represent the Soviet Union at a conference of world peace in New York. Shostakovich tried to resist until 
he received a call from Stalin himself. How Shostakovich had the temerity to do it, I can't imagine. But he asked Stalin how he could act on behalf of his country when that same country banned his music. In response, Stalin rescinded the ban order. But the trip to New York couldn't have come at a worse time. This was McCarthyism in the States. Every word Shostakovich spoke was printed in the papers. Soviet agents followed him everywhere he went. Demonstrators either denounced him or called for his defection. Conference goers tried to get candid confessions. When one composer managed to get him alone, Shostakovich muttered, it's hot in here, and walked away. When Stalin died in 1953, he was finally able to perform works written years before, but never heard. But those years left him scarred for life. And in the last segment, I think it's time to go to some of the lighter aspects of his life. But before we look at the lighter aspects of his life, I would ask Brian to play one of Shostakovich's preludes. Duncan Clark says of these, they were derived from his study of the music of Bach, and they are intensely personal pieces covering an emotional spectrum almost as wide as that of his quartets. From the simplicity of the first in C major to the quasi-symphonic grandeur of the last in D minor, the preludes and fugues bear the composer's soul with uncompromised honesty.
To get away from the stress of his life and get enjoyment, Shostakovich watched soccer. His widow wrote he could not live without football. He lived in football as though it was a special parallel dimension. In this terrain, he was forever young, happy, and free. He even gained a national referee permit. His first ballet, The Age of Gold, tells of a Soviet football team visiting the West whose captain is imprisoned by fascist agents only to be released as the footballers are joined by local workers to defeat the police. He also composed a football scene for a 1944 wartime performance by a dance ensemble. One day while out, he encountered one of the players from his favorite team and invited him to lunch. He was delighted when the whole group showed up and even more delighted when they requested he play something for them. He also loved ice hockey, boxing, tennis, and chess. But sometimes he even put football ahead of music. When he was meant to be teaching music at the Leningrad, Leningrad Conservatory, he would cut his lessons short and disappear out a back door to go see a match. He followed the game religiously, so much so that once, when a sports reporter was running late on a deadline, he called up Shostakovich, who gave him a play-by-play -play account of the game. In 1934, at the premiere of his Sixth Symphony, one critic complained that the final movement was just a football match in music, with members of the orchestra battling to see who would gain supremacy. Some also believe that Shostakovich coined the phrase, football is the ballet of the masses. Another passion was poker. And he has an unfinished opera called The Gambler, based on a Russian writer's comedy. There was a game in 1930 where he even lost his concert piano. It was a game of poker played in the director's office of the Leningrad Music Hall. The game lasted over 24 hours and the composer lost through most of those hours, although his piano was bought back by a friend. Once while playing in Odessa, he lost a thousand rubles, which was a huge sum. All of this you can find in the English translation of a book by one Dmitry Braginsky, a musician, musicologist, and professor. He gathered all his material on Shostakovich over a period of 14 years. He writes, on the one hand, he was a gambler and a risk taker. On the other, he was an incredibly orderly thinker. He often used polyphony in his music. To do so requires an incredible sense of order. He had such absolute mental discipline and an ordered mind. And yet, there was a gambler inside him. I hope you have enjoyed our program, and I hope you take an opportunity to listen to Shostakovich's music. I believe this summer at West Bend, one of his one of the court things that will be played by the quartet is some Shostakovich music. Thanks for listening. That was Barb Hobart on the life and music of Dmitry Shostakovich, with me, Brian Finley, at the piano. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, please do so. We'd love to hear from you. Email us westbend at westbend.ca. Thanks for joining us. Here's to sunshine ahead. Thank you for listening to Music for a While. 
Before you go, I want to thank the two sponsors of our podcast, Finley & Associates, a brilliant managing and consulting agency located in Alberta, as well as the Windswept Group, a familiar network of B&Bs, cottages, and custom retreats right here in Trent Hills. For more online fun, head to www.westbend.ca to enjoy musical moments, West Bend kids programming, and to stay up to date with all things West Bend. Thanks for listening.